Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, we're discussing the intrinsic qualities of the jiva, according to the Paramatma Sandharva of Jiva Goswami. This section, I mean this <laughs> part <laughs> of the Paramatma Sandharva deals with the characteristics of the jiva, according to Jamatri Muni. In the 19th Anucheda, he mentions 21 characteristics, and we are continuing tonight in a section of the 22nd through the 26th Anucheda, dealing with the fact that the jiva is not consciousness alone. It has, it's not just consciousness. It has qualities, and this is uh, this is significant because when we look to the core verse of the first three sandarbhas, vanati tat tat bhavidas tatvamyaj janamadvayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti subjate, and we hear the that the Brahmati, or the revelation of Brahman, which is the aspiration of some transcendentalists. Generally, that conception of the Supreme is irrespective of any qualities. It doesn't have any intrinsic potencies when we look to Brahman. It's an all-pervasive spiritual... um, energy or substance, uh, non-dual substance. And the Brahman conception is takes that really to the nth degree, the fact that in the, the ultimate issue, there is no distinctiveness within spiritual substance. No distinction. Distinction only arises in relationship with the material manifestation. Of course, we're speaking primarily of the application of the terminology Brahman as used by the followers of Sankaracharya, which is, of course, and unfortunately, a misrepresentation of what's presented in the Vedas. Basically, it's the knowledge that Sankaracharya uh, arrived at is not the true Vedic conclusion, but rather a conclusion that he arrived at as, as at his own, what we would call whim. He, he interpreted the Vedas according to what he wanted to present instead of interpreting the Vedas as they are, or as Prabhupada put on the end of his Bhagavad Gita, as it is. So... <clears throat> Uh, these 21 characteristics are important to see in that regard. The other thing that bears mentioning is when we look to even the terminology Sundarbha, and we, as we entered into this discussion of the Paramatma Sundarbha, it, it was a daunting. It's a daunting uh, presentation. It's terse. It's very difficult sometimes to work through the Anuchedas. 
but really we have to see what Jiva Goswami has given us in the Satsandarbhas. Or really, what's the other nomenclature? They're called the the Bhagavat Sandarbha. Not Bhagavat Sandarbha, but Bhagavat, meaning the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavat Purana. So Sandarbha means to bring out the essence of. So the whole presentation is meant to bring out the essence of what's presented in the Srimad Bhagavatam. And that's specifically what Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu um, empowered the Goswamis to accomplish is to bring out the essence of the Bhagavatam because it's, it's, it's a uniqueness. It flies in the face of the traditional theistic sampradayas that were present up to the appearance of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Up to his appearance, the primary pramans or evidence was uh, prastanatrayi, which is the ten principal Upanishads, uh, the Vedanta Sutra, which presents a, a basically an understanding of the Vedas, which is comprehensible in in a language that humanity can accommodate. To simply hear the sutras, uh, Tatvamasi or Aham Brahmasmi, simple phrases like that coming from the Vedas. Okay, Aham Brahmasmi, what's that really mean? You are Brahman. we need to know, we need some further explanation there. So that's what comes out in the Vedanta Sutra and, of course, the Bhagavad Gita. So these three were the primary evidences. And if you wanted to establish a theistic viewpoint or conclusion, based, it was to be based on those three sources and along comes the Gaudias and it's like well throw that out the window the Bhagavatam has everything why does it have everything it's a mature commentary on the Vedanta Sutra by the author himself so really let's take the Bhagavatam and if we look at the Sandarbhas that's where the Tattva Sandarbha begins we start there. We start with an understanding that the primary praman is the commentary on the Vedanta Sutra that was prepared by the author himself after thorough contemplation, a contemplation that was so deep that it he entered into a meditation that was so deep that he had, he entered into a samadhi, and in that samadhi he had a revelation, and in that revelation he had direct experience of the supreme Lord Himself. 
It doesn't get better than that. And after that, he was able to see the significance of what he wanted to accomplish in human society. Prior to that, he'd, he'd put everything down. He'd, he'd scribed everything with a little help from his friend who said, I'll write until you, as long as you speak, I will continue to write. So he had a scribe. So <clears throat> even after all that, presenting everything in a written form, knowing the, you know, the, the difficult situation of Kali Yuga and the lack of, of fine discrimination and the lack of memory. And up to that point, humanity had a, a lot more, um, a lot more actualization of their potential. <laughs> Fine memory, fine discrimination, uh, you know, disciplined lifestyle. And then along comes Kali Yuga and all that starts to diminish up to the point of, well, we won't talk about the end of Kali Yuga. The point being that humanity loses any trace of humanity by the end of Kali Yuga. So these this taking the essence of the Bhagavatam, I mean, just see what these Goswamis, what their task was, how significant it was, and then how blessed we are to have a presentation of the Sandarbhas in English that we can put our mind to and accommodate up to our level of ability as much as we can. We're trying to understand how Jiva Goswami is bringing this essence out and showing this is truly what's meant by Brahma, Madhva, Gaudiya, Vaishnav theology. Let's look at all these different tattvas, all these different truths. Let's fully understand. And when you have the fact that the Bhagavatam itself is an immense literature. And then the Goswamis took the Bhagavatam and started to unpack it. And they left such a wealth of literature for us to understand. And really, if you were to go back and even take an English translation of the Srimad Bhagavatam, without commentary and read it. Imagine, set aside the Bhaktivedanta purports, set aside the purports of Vishwanath Chakravarti, which are on a, on a much more confined um, revelation according to a deeper understanding of, of theology, whereas the Bhaktivedanta purports are much much put into a language that's understandable to the common man in the Western Hemisphere who has no background in Vedic theology, no background in Sanskrit, no background in the fine points of philo philo philosophy that are there in Krishna consciousness. What a task that was in and of itself. Take away the purports. 
how much would you draw of this kind of knowledge that Jiva Goswami is giving us without that commentary? So how significant is this bringing out of the essence of the Bhagavatam through a Sandarbha presentation, which is meant in and of itself to, to capture the essence? So it's it's truly a pleasure to be able to to go through this systematically and to garner some little glimpses into the depth of the philosophy we may not we may come away after studying the sandarbhas not with a, an extremely comprehensive understanding of the, all the intricate points that we'll be reviewing. We may go over the nature of the jiva and six months from now when we're talking about material nature as we as we get near the end of the Paramatma Sandarbha, be like, oh yeah, there were 21 characters. What were those 21 characteristics? What were those specific characteristics and how and what what verses of the Bhagavatam supported this characteristic or that? That's a lot of knowledge to try to to hold. But we will walk away from the study of the Sundarbhas with a true and deep sense of what is the Bhagavatam. What the Bhagavatam is giving to humanity is is just extraordinary. So we're on the twenty fifth Anucheta. And the 22nd through the 26th Anacheta are dealing with the fifth characteristic of the Jiva, that it's not mere consciousness, that it has some qualities. So we'll read from the 25th. Jiva writes, Furthermore, Sri Maitreya said, Such is Bhagavan's extrinsic potency, Maya, which contradicts all logic. For... Due to its influence, the living entity, who by nature is the ruler and liberated, experiences misery and bonding. Isvarasya, literally, of the ruler means of one who is intrinsically endowed with some power, such as the capacity to know. The commentary on this Anucheda. The word Isvarya is generally used for Paramatma. So when we say Aswara, we generally mean God. And when we talk of Paramatma, we talk about a conception of God which is very common as the creator, as the destroyer, as the, as the, the witness of everything. When, when we generally speak of God, we think of God in the context of our environment. So that's why when we think of Krishna, well, we know Krishna's too Bhagavan Swayam, but he's the playful God. He doesn't need to worry about, he has, he has potencies and energies and expansions to deal with that aspect of his nature to extend mercy. Generally, Paramatma is, the, is a definition of, of God that is appropriate to one immersed in the material nature. 
you understand the reason when we say Iswara, we generally should think of the Paramatma aspect of Krishna. Or the Supreme Eminent Self. In this verse, it has been instead, it has been used instead for the Jiva. Interesting. I mean, would you ever have, in reading this verse in the Bhagavatam, and I unfortunately I didn't write the Sanskrit verse, didn't leave the Sanskrit verse in my notes, but the terminology is there as Fara, and it's definitely talking about the Jiva. Now, without somebody like Jiva Goswami to say, hey, here, the terminology of Swara is applied to the Jiva. Why is that? We need to look at that. We need to, we need to understand why Maitreya used this terminology in referring to us. What are we the god of? And why should we even be considered to be a god? In this verse, it has been used instead for the jiva. It is formed by applying the varak suffix in the sense of having the nature of to the root is to rule, command, or govern. Consequently, the word isvara refers to one in whom there exists a natural capacity or a qualitative disposition to control, rule, command, or govern. Well, that's us. We want to control, rule, govern. We want it all in relationship to this environment. So, okay, that's our nature. Where'd that nature come from? But more than where the nature come from, because we know where it came from, we, are, we have some of those qualities in minute quantity, um, is the fact that that in and of itself so shows a potentiality on our part. In this verse, the jiva is also called, called isvara, which signifies that it has some power to control the body, senses, and so on, and thus has power to act and to know. So the jiva is not without potencies of its own. In spite of this, it becomes controlled by maya and is thus not an omnipotent Ishvara, like Paramatma, who is always free from maya's influence and is her controller. Sujiva comments, therefore, that the jiva has only some power, meaning a little, kinchit, and not unlimited powers, as is the case with Paramatma. Going on to the next Danucheda. All this is going to, going to, is coming to a point of, of really understanding deeply what is, what is our conditioning, condition, what, it, what are our potentials, and also what's it really mean when, when we say achinta beta beta tattva. What's it really mean? We're alike, but we're different, and it's inconceivable. Other sampradayas accept uh, beta, beta, ta, beta tattva, but the achinta part, how's it work? What, what is the part of you which is godlike, and what's those parts of God which you're never going to have? I mean, when we look at it, it's, it's, it's an amazing, 
analysis that goes into all these qualities. There are unlimited potencies of the Supreme, but the Goswami said, well, let's, let's take a representative sampling of those unlimited potencies. And if we look at just 64 of them, we can attribute 50 to the jiva, which are common to God and you. We got 50 potencies like Krishna, like the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And then there's also the additional potencies that, that are there in Lord Shiva. And then there's even more potencies that are there uh, in Narayan. And then you have Krishna himself with six, four very unique manifestations of potency, which if looked at in the broad perspective of what the Bhagavatam is teaching us, are showing this is what it means, Krishna stu Bhagavan Swayam. All these incarnations, all these manifestations, they can't, they're, although they're candles lit by Krishna, it's not quite as bright, but it's still pretty bright. And our candle is also lit from Krishna. And we also have potencies, is what Jiva's bringing out here. So the next Anucheta. The Jiva's potency is intrinsic, part three. Furthermore, Sri Narada said to Prachinabarhi, verse from the fourth canto, thus deluded and cheated of his entire nature by the queen, the ignorant king impotently imitated his wife without wanting to, like a pet animal. Jiva explains. He explains, he gives a commentary here, what, in a way that brings out what he wants to show in relationship to the subject at hand. But as we know, he could probably have written another 60 commentaries on this particular verse. Lord Chaitanya showed what, how you can take one verse from the Bhagavatam and draw out so much meaning. So when we look to the Sandarbhas and the fact that the Sandarbhas give us the essence of the Bhagavatam, they give us a technicolor essence of the, of the Bhagavatam, but it could be multiverses, universal presentations of what's in the Bhagavatam. We'll never come to an end of understanding what the Bhagavat Purana has to offer. There's no difference between this Purana and Krishna himself. So there's no limit to the potencies and what is presented in the Bhagavatam. Being deluded, this is exactly what Jiva's writing in his Anucheta, Vipralabdha by Queen Paranjani, Paranjan was cheated of Vanchita, meaning that he was not made, I'm sorry, he, meaning that he was made to abandon his entire true nature 
in the form of self-awareness and so on. The phrase without wanting to means that he acted according to her desires alone. The verb imitated, anukuroti, means that he superimposed her phenomenal characteristics, her dharma, upon his own true self, Atmani, becoming thus identified with her qualitative nature. So Jiva say, look at what happened to him. He had a lot of lot going for him, then all of a sudden he experienced this. He lost his true sense of self, Atmani. It was covered over by her characteristics. Now, of course, Paranjani is a great jnani, right? Jnani. She's the jnani, the booty, the intellect of, in this narration, as Narada's giving it to uh, Prachini Bharati, she represents the intellect, the deluded intellect, an intellect deluded by the material energy or the circumstance of a material body. Why do we say a material body? Because Narda in this dialogue really brings out the significance of how we inhabit a material body and the, the, the mentality that covers our true spiritual existence by inhabiting a body. So here he's talking about one aspect of that color, cover, covering being the intellect as compared to the wife. The judgment of, of uh, Paranjan. So Jiva goes on, regarding the Jiva's being intrinsically endowed with potency, Shakti, the following sutra should also be considered. By the will of Bhagavan, Para, however, the Jiva's intrinsic qualities are obscured because from him proceed the self's bondage and liberation. Commentary. The verse cited here is part of an instruction that Narada imparted to King Prachinabarhi by way of an allegorical tale. Narada explains the nature of the jiva and its bondage to the material body. In the allegory, the jiva is compared to a king called Paranjan, whereas the intellect, Bodhi, is likened to his queen called Paranjani. That the jiva is depicted as a king implies that it has some power to control and is a sort of ruler or Ishvara, an adjective used for the jiva in the verse from the previous Anucheda. When, however, the jiva identifies with the intellect, which gives rise to the notions of I and mine, he behaves just like a husband who is fully under the control of his wife. This is summed up in Narda's own words. This is from the from that same discourse. The verse used is the Praman, is verse four twenty five sixty two, and this is four twenty nine two. One should know Paranjan, 
the creator of the city, the body, to be the jiva, who produces a city for himself in the shape of a body that has either one, two, three, four, or numerous feet, or no feet at all. One should know, one should know the young woman, Paranjani, to be conditioned intellection, moody, which gives rise to the notions of I and mine. Identifying himself with this function, the jiva in the body experiences the various sense objects through the senses. The explanation given here, namely, that through identification with the intellect, the jiva is cheated of his entire nature, indicates that the self must possess innate powers such as cognitive awareness that are overshadowed when in contact with conditioned intellection, buddhi. This is confirmed by the Brahma Sutra verse cited by Sri Jiva Goswami in which it is said that the self's attributes are obscured tirohita or made manifest by the will of Bhagavan. So, so much credit is being given here to what are the potencies, the shaktis of the jiva. But to understand the extent of what those potencies are, Jiva Goswami is also giving us an insight to what extent these potencies are covered. So there's, it's like pointing out when you grow up, when you, when you come of age, you're going to be able to drive a car or you're going to be able to have a girlfriend. You're going to be able to have your own family. You're going to be able to have everything that you see in this house that I've raised you in when you grow up. So we, we it's like, oh, wow, I'm, this is going to be a great life. I have so much to look forward to. So in that way, Jiva Goswami is encouraging us as readers as, look, you really, as a jiva, have so much innate capacity to experience the reality of your spiritual existence. You're just, you just need to, to come out of the conditioning of the external potency and, and come of age in your true spiritual nature. We'll begin the 27th Anucheta, part one. The 27th Anucheta is broken into two parts. These two parts deal with uh, the jiva is conscious of itself, is the first part. And the sec second part is the jiva is self-luminous. So the, what we've been up to this point covering in from the 22nd to the 26th Anucheta, the fact that we're not mere consciousness. There's more to the jiva than, than just being aware. There's more than that awareness. And that awareness goes deep. And it, uh, all the definition of what is knowledge and the different aspects of knowledge. So now Jiva's going on and he's saying... Um, Part of your awareness, the consciousness that you have, is the fact that you're aware that of what you are. 
you're you're conscious of yourself and then the second part of this Anucheta, 27th Anucheta is presented in two sections, uh, speaks to the fact that we're self-luminous. We have a capacity, not only are we conscious, but we have a capacity to, to comprehend things due to that con- conscious cognitive aspect of our being. Uh, we're conscious of ourself and we're able to 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 use that ability to go beyond ourself. This particular anocheta is extremely thick. So we'll go through those aspects that that I feel will give us some insight to what Jiva's trying to uh, bring out here, but we won't go into all the aspects presented in the commentary because a lot of it gets into uh, not only a presentation of the particularities of Sanskrit and how the language is used to bring out in and of itself the different meanings of words, but also uh, philosophical points that are that are quite fine, and we'll we'll go over them in brief, but not in detail. So the Anacheta itself, Jiva writes, to clarify the above meaning, to clarify everything up to this point, um, that the Atma is not mere consciousness but also intrinsically endowed with cognitive awareness. Jamitri Muni, in Anarchetis 19, which started this whole discussion of the jiva, said, it is conscious of itself and self-luminous. Swasmai, Swayam, Prakasa, Shat. Qualities number six and seven. So that's what we're discussing now. The uh, self... Six is self-aware? Yes. Okay. Conscious. It's conscious of itself. Yes, self-aware. And then the second part is self-luminous. The self's characteristic of self-luminosity was expressed also in Chaitan... Anucheta 19, by the word Swadrik, self-aware, in Bhagavatam 11.10.8, the principal, principal verse of that section. So remember, the 19th Anucheta had two, two sections. Uh, first was a, a, a quote from a verse of the Padma Purana, and then Jamatri Muni's uh, clarification of that verse and then the one verse from uh, from the Bhagavatam which Jiva here is saying of everything I presented in that 19th Anucheta that verse from the Bhagavatam uh, the self-luminary 
self-luminous aspect of the of ourself uh, was covered in the word swadrik. So that verse reads in English as follows, just to remind us, and that's also in the Anucheta, Jiva put it there. The Atma, which is the witness and self-aware, is distinct from the subtle and gross bodies, in the same way that fire, which burns and illuminates, is different from the wood that is burnt. Jiva continues, Luminosity, Prakash, is of two kinds, based on the distinction made between luminosity as a quality, guna, and a luminous substance, dravya. The first kind of luminosity is that which makes visible the source of its own luminosity. The second kind is the specific luminous entity, vastu, itself, that is instrumental in making itself and other objects visible. So this explanation gets very technical into, into understanding why exactly Jiva Goswami uses the terminology Swasmai Swayam Prakash. Swayam Prakash, self-luminous. But a lot of the commentary deals with this aspect of he's, his adding the word swasmai to distinguish the nature of the luminosity of the jiva, the self, which is conscious, and the luminosity of a lamp. So a lot of the dialogue here is going to... It, it's meant to bring us to this simple understanding at the end. And he, there's a lot of pounding the post to get you to the point of understanding the need of the, to, to comprehend the fact that the jiva is not inert. It has consciousness. It itself has the capacity to illuminate, to to bring knowledge to itself of not only itself but of other things. So it's not just like a lamp where you can see that the lamp gives off light and you can also see the things around the in the lamp's light. So a lot of terse language here to bring us to acceptance of that fact if we had any difficulty in just accepting it outright. And that's, that's the nature of spiritual logic. Not leaving any room for opposing misconceptions to enter into your picture of the self. Jiva goes on. In this particular instance, since the Atma is acceptance as a substance, dravya, only the latter type of luminosity is applicable. Not, not a quality, but is itself light. It actually is in itself. So the latter type, that it is a, a qual, not a qual, a, 
a quality, but it is of the nature of the being of consciousness to have the ability to illuminate. For example, Jiva goes on, a lamp is illuminating the eye. I'm sorry, a lamp in illuminating the eye makes both itself and other objects visible of its own accord without dependence on another light to reveal it. So you'd say it's self-luminous. As would be the case for a clay pot, if it's illuminating a clay pot. Therefore, the lamp is called self-luminous, Swayam Prakash. It is not, however, self-revealing in regard to itself. It has no awareness that it's giving off light. It's not aware that it's a light. It's not aware that it's illuminating. And it's not aware of any of the objects around it that are basking in its light so that it and those things can be perceived. And thus it is said to be inert or unconscious, Jada. The Atma, on the other hand, illuminates both itself and others. But since it is also self-revealing in regards to its own self, i.e. because it is self-aware, it is said that it is self-illuminating of its own self, Swamsi Swayam Prakash, as opposed to Swayam Prakash. Or in other words, self-aware and self-luminous. For this reason, it is said to be inherently of the nature of consciousness, Chidrupa. So I'll stop there. Are there any questions? I had a question, but I didn't mean you were just saying that. I just suddenly remember hearing or reading years and years ago that Prabhupada said that the, the actual self is more luminous than the sun. Our outer self. Well, yes. And what's a good example of that? The sun heats the whole universe. Hiranyakasipu took the temperature so high that the demigods were seeking relief. So there's a lot more potency in, a, in an atma individually is, is what Prabhupada is saying, mm -hmm. that the atma itself, within, within the confines of the sun god's capacity, that doesn't mean that the sun god couldn't turn up the energy if he wanted. But within the confines of his duties in relationship to the material energy, he, you know, he illuminates up to a point. But the Atma has even more potency than that, as evidenced by this one, one Leela at least. You can see where an Atma, a Haranyakasipu, can turn up his energy to such an, a point that the demigods are seeking refuge from the heat. <laughs> or can turn can turn off through yogic powers the capacity to breathe to such an extent one jiva is making the whole universe gasp for air Dhruva Maharaj thank you so much for your association thank you. Thank you so much.